Good morning. Thank you. Did you miss me? Thank you for humoring me. If you have your Bibles, I want you to go ahead and open to 1 Timothy chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers will be happy to give you one. Uh, while you're opening there, if, and if you don't have a Bible, you can just raise your hand. They'll, they'll give you one. You can keep that one. Um, on your way in, you should have gotten a copy of the current. And on the back of the current, there is an announcement about Baptism Sundays. So we're having baptisms coming up August 20th. If you are a believer in Jesus and you've not been baptized as a believer, we would love to baptize you. We think that's being obedient to Scripture. And uh, so even if you're not sure if you want to be baptized, we'd love to just talk to you about that. Uh, if you want to learn more about what we think baptism is, why we do it, why we do it the way we do it, uh, there are two classes coming up uh, next Sunday and the Sunday after, July 30th, August 6th. You need to come to both, uh, and we'll talk through uh, what baptism is and why we do it, talk to you about how we do it. Uh, and so if you want to be baptized, we are asking you to come to both of those classes. Uh, you can sign up for that online. Uh, contact the church office. Uh, we'd be happy to talk to you about that. Love uh, to hear stories of people being saved by Christ and changed and want to be baptized to make a public profession of that. It's a wonderful Sunday celebration, and uh, we always have a lot of fun with that. So please consider that. Uh, now let's pray, and we'll start talking about Scripture. Lord, as we come to this passage of, of Scripture that Paul has written, we know, uh, even Peter said there are things that Paul wrote that are hard to understand, and that the unstable twist to their own destruction, we pray that we would not do that, but that we would instead focus on Christ and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. The series on 1 Timothy we're calling Blueprint for the Church. Now, the reason for that is do I need to turn it on? It says it's on. Where do I point it? All right, this is a failure. Hey, was that you did it? Oh, oh man, okay. All right, we'll keep working on it. Uh, the reason we're calling it Blueprint for the Church is because, you see, in 1 Timothy 3.15, Paul gives us his reason for writing the book. Uh, usually when you want to ask a question like, why did Paul write this book? It's, it's, it's good to look at the place where he says, this is why I wrote it. He says, I write to you, Timothy, so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. And so, in some sense, Paul is writing this letter to Timothy uh, as a, a sort of uh, instruction in the way that the church should be ordered. Uh, and, and he's writing to Timothy, who's in Ephesus, overseeing the church there. But it's not only about Ephesus. There's, there's indications, uh, certainly even in this sentence, the fact that if Paul's saying it's not just so that you will know how you ought to conduct yourself in this church, but you will know how one ought to conduct himself. It's just how anyone should, should be operating in the local church. And so we see that the issues that Paul's dealing with in this letter are, they're not bound to that time and place. They're perennial issues. We face the same kind of things today. 
And so the book is really about how God has designed the church to work. As we pick up in 1 Timothy 2, we need to understand where the text fits in Paul's flow of thought. Let me try this again. Is it? No. Okay, can we advance to the next slide? Thank you. So, a couple weeks ago, uh, and Tom taught, and we, and, or no, Bob taught, started off the book, and we, we started by talking about the first 11 verses of the book. And really, we see there, it's all about the, the church's gospel confession. Was that me or you? Man. Okay. I'm just going to give up. The church is supposed to defend the truth of the gospel against false teaching. And then last week, Tom took us through the middle of chapter one to the middle of chapter two, and we see it's all about the church's gospel commission. The church is to proclaim the truth of the gospel. God saved Paul, and it was an amazing act of grace and mercy because Paul was a blasphemer and a persecutor of the church. But he didn't just save Paul for Paul's benefit, he saved Paul for the benefit of those who had come to believe through him. And then at the beginning of verse eight in our text, so we're starting in verse eight, you have this word, therefore. That's a really important word. Or when I was first learning how to study the Bible, you all probably heard me tell this joke before. Anytime you come across the word, therefore, you're asked to, supposed to ask, what's it there for? Ah, some of you got it. But it's really important. And, and it's curious to me, and I, I don't, I'm not usually in favor of bashing the NIV, but as I was looking at these these passages this week, the NIV doesn't have this word translated at all. It just starts a new sentence. And I'm like, that's a big swing and a miss because I think this word is really important. It connects what Paul is going to say in our passage this morning with what Paul has already said. So, so 1 Timothy is not just this collection of spiritual sayings that Paul has put together. There's a flow of thought. And so we want to see where our text fits in the flow of thought. So if the church is has this gospel confession that it's supposed to protect and a gospel commission that it's supposed to proclaim, then in light of those things, we see that the church is called to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Call it its gospel conduct. Now that I think so? Hey! Okay, I got it. So I, I think the big idea that Paul is trying to get at in this passage, ultimately, is that we should be focusing on godliness in our conduct because our conduct reflects on our gospel confession and our gospel commission. I think that word therefore really indicates that, that, that Paul moves into talking about the church's conduct, the church's behavior, right on the heels of talking about the gospel because... Think about this, what happens when a high-profile Christian leader stumbles morally? It gives critics a field day, not just to criticize them and their hypocrisy, but also to undermine and criticize the gospel itself. Say, I don't want anything to do with the gospel because look at what these people do. Or I had a conversation on Friday with an atheist. And in this conversation, one of the things he said to me was that 
in his personal relationships, he tends to have more respect for uh, Jews and Muslims that he knows because he sees their actions are more consistent with what they profess. And one of his big problems with Christianity is that the Christians he knows, or at least the professing Christians that he knows, that they're hypocrites. He says they go to church on Sunday and then they go and they live like everybody else on Monday. And why would I want to be a part of that? See, your relationship with God, your, your worthy manner of conduct in the church, this word that uh, Paul uses for that is, is godliness, this way of life that flows from a deep reverence for and reliance upon God. Your way of life reflects more than on just you. It reflects on the church and it reflects on the gospel. And so, Paul is admonishing the church. Okay, we need to focus on your godliness. We need to focus on your conduct in the church because it's going to affect the gospel and our mission. So Paul's going to address three particular areas where there, were, uh, there was ungodly conduct uh, in Ephesus, arguments and appearance and uh, the church's attitude towards gender and leadership. This is happening in Ephesus, but these, these things still uh, affect us today. This is not just bound to that time and place. So as we, uh, we work through, we're going to start in verse 8. And Paul starts specifically by addressing men. But he says that ultimately we're gonna, we need to focus on our godliness instead of our arguments. Now, in the passage, these three areas start with instructions particularly for men or women. So verse 8 is about men, verses 9 and 10 are about women, verses 11 to 15 are about women. And I think there's reasons for that. Ultimately, these are good principles for all of us, and I think especially uh, in Paul's uh, ministry in Ephesus, he was seeing these things were working themselves out with these genders. Uh, and perhaps the issues uh, that he's addressing are ones uh, that men or women are more prone to. We'll see as we, as we keep going. So verse 8, therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. So we had seen in verses 1 to 7 uh, that Paul was instructing the whole church to pray, to pray for the good of the church, that it might lead a, lead a quiet, godly life in dignity. We we're supposed to pray for authorities, and then we're supposed to pray for, for all people because God desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And so it ends up becoming a, an evangelistic prayer. And, and Tom was challenging us, who are you praying for by name that they might come to know the Lord? And so Paul circles back around to this. He says, therefore, I want people in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. And so I think the problem that Paul ultimately is addressing here is that men are spending more time arguing than they are praying. They should have been praying evangelistically, but instead they're involved in these heated theological arguments. And you see this throughout the rest of the book. In 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 6, Paul tells 
Timothy, you know, I'm, uh, you're in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines or to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God which is by faith. For some men straying from these things have turned aside into fruitless discussion. You see it again at the end of the book, we'll get in a couple weeks, Paul's saying these people are conceited and they understand nothing. They have morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men. You see, they're having these, these debates about theology and, and, and in particular these controversial questions that lead to fruitless discussion. It's often said in the Middle Ages, theologians would spend a lot of time discussing how many angels could dance on the head of a pin. And these are the kind of discussions they're having. And the result is that their behavior is sinful. Verse 8 says there was wrath, anger. Out of these discussions arise envy, strife, abusive language. And their unity was shattered. It caused dissension leading to evil suspicions and constant friction. And as a result, the mission suffered. You go back to chapter 1, it says, their fruitless discussions gave rise to mere speculation rather than the furthering of the administration of God. That is, rather than advancing the gospel. So they got into all of these debates instead of doing evangelism. So Paul's calling on them to, to correct that. He says, the corrective is, I want men in every place to pray. So we should be praying. Now, does that mean that only men should be praying? No. But it seems like this is the, what was going on in Ephesus at the time, and perhaps men are more prone to have heated theological arguments and forget to pray. He says, I want men to pray, and I think especially he's thinking evangelistically. And he says, I want men to pursue holiness, lifting holy hands. That's, I don't think that's about the posture in which you pray, although it's certainly fine if you want to pray with, with lifted hands. The idea of, of lifting holy hands is probably somewhat similar to in Psalm 24 when, when the psalmist says, the one who may ascend to the hill of the Lord, that is the one who may go to worship God is he who has clean hands and a pure heart. The one who is praying out of a lifestyle of personal holiness. And maybe especially in view, because of the kind of friction that these debates were causing, is the pursuit of holiness in relationships. You think back to where Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, if you have a gift at the altar and you have something against your brother, leave your gift and go and be reconciled to your brother first. That the, that the friction and dissension in personal relationships actually affects your prayers. Now, I could spend a lot more time on some of the other verses, but, but I've drawn out stuff in verse 8 because I think especially as I studied the passage, I began to be personally convicted. There's probably nobody who enjoys vigorous theological discussion as much as I do. And the more I looked at this passage, 
more I started to think your godliness matters as much as your doctrine. Paul even says this later in the book to Timothy. He says, Timothy, watch your life and your doctrine closely. Both. See, there are some people who, because they don't like talking about doctrine, they think it's divisive, will say, well, what we really need to focus on is godly living, and that's, we just need to follow Jesus, and we can let all the arguments go, and that can be a smokescreen for avoiding necessary theological precision. But, rigorous theology can be used to mask a life that is devoid of godliness. So I know many of you really enjoy thinking about these things. You like deep study. You like reading books that are over a thousand pages long that have $10 words in the title. You gotta understand, it's not all about how it gets into here. It's gotta go here. It has to change your life. Sound doctrine that isn't based on a godly life isn't sound. And don't allow your interest in theological discussion to distract from the church's mission. See, I think what was happening in Ephesus at the time is you have these guys, they're getting really uh, into all of their Bible studies and they're learning all of their Greek words and the meanings and all this stuff. And they're not committing themselves to evangelism. And that has a, a detrimental effect on the mission of the church. One, because guys just aren't doing evangelism. Two, it's setting an example for others that what's more important is fighting over words and not proclaiming the gospel. There's a friend of mine who was, uh, uh, still, still is, uh, on staff with a parachurch ministry. This isn't me, this really is a friend of mine. And uh, he told me a story one time that he took a bunch of college students to uh, a summer project. One of the things they were doing on this project, or maybe it was a spring break project, one of the things they were doing is they were going out and doing beach evangelism. So they'd go out onto the beach and they would find people to have conversations with and then share the gospel. But there was a group of guys that came with them who thought it was the funniest thing in the world to be like, well, we're just going to go around to all of the other Christians who came and are going around sharing the gospel and ask them if they know what penal substitutionary atonement means. We're going to go around and ask them if they really understand the doctrine here. And that was sad because not only were these guys not doing what they were supposed to be doing, they thought it was more important for them to have these discussions with the people who were trying to share the gospel. I think my friend rebuked them sharply, uh, which they deserved. Don't take away that what I'm saying is it's not important to, to discuss these things, but when we discuss these things at the expense of the mission, it affects the church. So we should focus on our, on our godliness instead of our arguments. Next, we should focus on godliness instead of our appearance. 
So now he moves from talking specifically to men to talking specifically to women. Again, this isn't because there aren't men who need to hear this. This is because I think particularly in Ephesus, and perhaps more so today as well, that this is an issue that is more prevalent for women than it is for men. So the problem that they're facing in Ephesus, it seems like, is that women are calling attention to their appearance by their attire rather than calling attention to their godly life and character. You see in verse 9, it says, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for a woman making a claim to godliness. So in the second half of verse 9 there, we got a we got to explain something. So Paul says, I don't want women to, to have braided hair or wear gold or pearls or costly garments. So some of you might be thinking, so does that mean I can't braid my hair? I can't wear gold earrings? I can't do it? I don't think that's the point. But I think what's going on is in Ephesus at the time, dressing like this was either a sign that you were rich or you were available. So women, women seem to have been going around in the church flaunting their social status like they were going to the country club and trying to impress people with how good they looked. Or women were going around dressed like this in order that they might flaunt their sexuality and their availability to, to men. They were coming to church so that they could meet Mr. Wright And the problem with this, ultimately, is that to, to focus on appearance so much is to call attention to your looks instead of your life, and to call attention to yourself rather than to Christ. Remember, John the Baptist says when, when people are, are asking him, you know, Jesus is getting more followers. What are you going to do? He says, that's great. He must increase and I must decrease. Right? That should be the motto of every Christian. He must increase and I must decrease. So the more I grow in my godliness, the less I want people to see of me and the more I want people to see of Jesus. And so Paul offers the, the women the same kind of corrective that he offered the men. He says, okay, so I want women to adorn themselves in proper clothing, he says, I want them to dress modestly. Modesty and, uh, he says, modestly and discreetly. That word discreetly means with good judgment and suitable restraint. So, even though the list is specific to that culture, and the point is not a list of do's and don'ts here, the principle is, is the same, I think. It's don't allow yourself to become a distraction to others by what you wear. In fact, Paul then says, you shouldn't be thinking really about that at all. You should be thinking about how you can adorn yourself by means of good works, in verse 10. Because that is what's proper for a woman making a claim to godliness. Again, think back to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, so let your light shine before men that they might see your good looks and glorify your Father in heaven. Oh, did I get that wrong? 
the thing that people will see in us that glorifies God are our good works, our works that are done out of a heart of devotion to God and love and thankfulness to Him. So the more we focus on ourselves and calling attention to ourselves and having people notice us, even if we think it's for okay reasons, the more it takes away from God's glory. Again, a couple thoughts here for application. Young ladies, especially if you're not married and you want to be married, how does the way you're dressed communicate to guys? What what does your attire tell guys about your character? Because I'm going to tell you the truth. If you dress a certain way, you will get a certain kind of guy, but that's not the kind of godly guy that you want to marry. You want guys to notice you. If you're looking for a husband, you want guys to notice you because of your godliness, not because of your good looks. Young men, Proverbs 31 says that charm is fleeting and beauty is deceitful, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. And so, as you are here, if you're a young man and you're not married and you want to be married someday, be thinking about the kind of person you want to marry is the kind of person who is more concerned about her character and her godliness than about her appearance. And really, for everyone, we should be thinking about this. This does not mean that young ladies have to wear a paper bag or a burlap sack. It's not what I'm talking about. And we know that there, there are cultural uh, markers for what is and is not appropriate. And I can't give you a list of do's and don'ts, uh, but you can do this, you can't do this, you can have your shoulders showing, you can't have your shoulders. Like, that's not what we're talking about. But maybe a, a way to think about this is asking yourself a question. And this is for all of us. How much time do you spend crafting your appearance? And how much effort do you spend cultivating godliness? That's the question. Are you more concerned when you, when you are meeting people with how you look or more concerned about what they see of Christ in you? So we should focus on our godliness instead of arguing. We should focus on godliness instead of our appearance. And last, we should focus on godliness and our attitude towards gender and leadership. Now, if you read the passage this week, and I know many of you did, this is the part that you were, you're like rubbing your hands for when you come and say, I can't wait to see what he's going to do with this. You'll notice that on this Uh, which has been called by many commentators as the most controversial passage in the letter, one of the most controversial passages in the New Testament, you'll notice that Tom is conspicuously absent from teaching on this. So we're just going to walk through the text and see what it says. You see, part of pursuing godliness in a way that reflects well on the church is to follow God's design for the way the church is supposed to operate, including his design for distinct gender roles in the church. And and what may have been happening, and we piece this together from other passages in the book and, and also in 2 Timothy, some of the things happening there, 
we see what may have been happening is that women, some women, perhaps being led astray by these false teachers, were beginning to subvert God's design for gender roles and leadership in the church. Uh, They may have been engaging in public outbursts in the middle of services. They may have been seeking to undermine the appointed leaders of the church. Whatever specifically was going on, Paul felt that it was necessary to remind them, like, no, this is God's design for the way the church is supposed to operate. So look with me at verse 11. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. So I'm sure that went over well. <laughs> now let me explain. First off, know that the fact that Paul expects women to learn is radical in the, early, in the first century, in the early church. In the Jewish synagogue, it was not allowed for women to learn the law. In fact, I read a quote from a rabbinic document that said, it's better to burn a copy of the Torah than to teach it to a woman. Christianity was radically liberating for women. They were allowed to learn. They're fellow heirs of the grace of salvation. So they, it corrects so much uh, of the, uh, the, the inequality in terms of being and value and worth and purpose that was present in the ancient world. He says women are to learn. Now, he gives two uh, two supporting uh, words to describe how they are supposed to learn. It says, women must quietly learn. And the word quietly here does not mean absolute silence, and it does not necessarily refer to volume. Uh, it's the same word that's used at the beginning of chapter 2, where it says that uh, in verse 2 that uh, we, we're supposed to pray for, for all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. So the whole church is supposed to live this quiet life of dignity. The word really means it's it's a a peaceable, respectful, humble, teachable demeanor. This may uh, be counteracting the the fact that some of the women in the Ephesian church were were bursting out and trying to usurp uh, the the leadership and the teaching of, of the elders. And then he says that women must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. It's another one that lands pretty well. And we've talked, we've talked many times about what submission means and marriage and all those things, and so we can talk more about that. But for the sake of time, just understand, one, it doesn't mean absolute subjugation, and nor does it say that women are to be entirely submissive to all men. That's not the point. The the idea of entire submissiveness here has to do with placing yourself under the authority of another to lead and care for you, especially because it's in the context of learning. It seems that what Paul has in mind here is that he's calling that women uh, should submit themselves to the teaching authority of the elders in the church rather than trying to, to subvert their authority or usurp their authority and Really, this is a command for everybody. Look at Hebrews 13, 17. This is one of those verses that pastors usually don't preach on because it's oddly self-serving. Obey your leaders and submit to them, 
for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. That would be a fun sermon to preach. But, but the idea is that ultimately, it's everybody who is supposed to submit themselves under the authorities that God has placed in the church. So we're all under Christ, and under Christ, God has appointed people to lead the church, pastors and elders, to be under shepherds. And so when it says that women are supposed to learn quietly and with entire submissiveness, I think, yeah, he's specifically talking about women there, but I think it's very easy to expand that to everybody. Those aren't just injunctions for women. Now, the fun one. Verse 12. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So Paul's correction for what's going on with gender roles and leadership in the church is one, says women are to learn. Here are the ways that they're supposed to learn. So, but yeah, make sure women are learning. Then the second he says, but women are not to lead the church. I think what verse 12 is talking about is that women are restricted from fulfilling the, the role of pastor and elder. I don't think this is necessarily about every specific instance in which a woman can or can't teach. We could have a whole debate about what that looks like. But the fact that teaching and exercising authority are there together it's in the context of learning in the local church. The passage that's directly after this is about elders, about who's qualified to be an elder. So I think uh, the upshot is that what Paul is saying by saying, I don't permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man is for him to say, I don't permit women to occupy the office of pastor and elder or take on the responsibilities associated with that role for governing, shepherding, and teaching the church the most prominent of which is the public preaching of the word. I think from, from this and, and even more so from other passages, we see that the New Testament church, pastor and elder is reserved for qualified men. Not just men, qualified men. Now, to our culture, that seems very unfair and backwards and regressive and we get all kinds of, of vitriol because of that. When people say, well, that was just their culture, we're different now, we know a lot better, we're smarter. That's what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. Or it really had to do with a specific context and something there, but Paul would have allowed women elders elsewhere. I don't think that's the case, and I think we see that because Paul tells us that women are restricted from that role because of God's creative design. Look in verse 13. Starts with four. So think, this word is important. This word is telling me something. I don't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man but to remain quiet. Four, because it was Adam who was created first and then Eve. 
And so this, this instruction, this restriction has nothing to do with gifting, it has nothing to do with ability, it has nothing to do with inferiority, value, worth, purpose, being made in the image of God, it has nothing to do with any of those things. It's the way God designed men and women to work. He goes back before sin, before the fall, and he says, appealing to the fact that Adam was created first, he says, I created men and women differently. I created them to have distinct roles. And the church is supposed to reflect that in the same way that the family is supposed to reflect that. And then in verse 14, and this is a confusing verse. Again, I could probably preach a whole sermon on that verse. It was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. I think the point is that when the roles God designed are reversed, bad things happen, and so he goes to the fall, and he says, what happens in the fall? Satan comes to Eve and tempts Eve first. He, he undermines and flips God's design on its head. You're like, what well, says Eve became a transgressor? Does that mean Adam was, a, you know, was innocent? <laughs> no, in fact, go read Romans 5. Paul blames Adam for the sin of everybody. Right, so Adam doesn't get off the hook. But specifically here he's saying the undermining of God's design for gender distinction and distinct roles had a particular impact in the fall. So he says, this is the way I think things should work in the church. When we do things according to God's design, it works like it's designed to work. When we do things according to our own design, it doesn't work nearly as well. I think about any time I try to put together anything, especially from Ikea. <laughs> you follow those directions, kind of, and you end up with something, and then you look at the box, the front of the box, and you look at the thing you built, and you say, how come mine doesn't look like that? And they gave you the instructions for a reason. If you don't do it according to the instructions, they're going to say, well, you should have followed the instructions. That's why we gave them to you. And then we have this other fun verse, verse 15. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. You're thinking, what the heck does that mean? Paul just kind of throws that one in at the end as a bonus. It's like, if you guys weren't confused enough already, how about this? Well, first of all, I'm going to say, I think the New American Standard mistranslates this. Um, the way the New American Standard has written it, women will be preserved through the bearing of children, it makes it sound like it's mostly about childbirth, a woman in labor. Uh, and it, so it makes it sound like, oh, it's a promise. Women will be preserved. They're not going to be harmed uh, while they're in labor uh, if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. The problem is that is, if that's true, that, that promise seems to not happen because there's lots of godly women who have died in childbirth. The other thing is that the word preserve is the same word uh, that, the, that Paul uses everywhere else for save. And so it should be translated, I think, because Paul never uses this word to talk about physical preservation. He always uses it to talk about spiritual salvation it says women will be saved 
through childbearing or the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Now, that brings up an even harder issue because now you're saying, wait, so you're saying women have their sins forgiven because they bear children? Well, obviously, I don't think that's the case. That'd be salvation by works. Uh, and Paul everywhere else refutes that. So here's what I think it's saying. Childbearing is a reference to the fall. Part of the curse of the fall, the curse that came as a result of this reversal of gender distinction and the temptation was pain in childbearing. And I think what, what Paul is saying is, in spite of the fact that all of this has happened, women will be saved despite the curse, despite the curse that, that she and Adam brought on them, women will be saved through it, that is, passing through it and coming out of it, passing through the curse. They will be saved despite the curse, and their salvation will be demonstrated through their perseverance in godliness, faith and love and sanctity and self-restraint. Those things are found in lists like the fruit of the Spirit. He's saying women will be saved and, and they'll be saved like everybody else through faith in Christ, not with works. And will do it if they, if they persevere in godliness. So ultimately, he gets to the end and he's back to what we've been talking about. What matters is godliness. What matters is that you focus on your godliness. So I don't want you to walk away from this passage thinking about what you can and can't do if you're a woman. If you walk away and think, that Paul was a misogynist and he can't, he's telling me I can't do this, I can't do that. I think you've missed Paul's point if you walk away saying that. I think the point is not to focus on what you aren't called to do in God's design. I think the point is that you need to focus on what you are called to do. Pursue a life of godliness and submission to Christ and his word. So a couple concluding thoughts. If you're a Christian, I want you to think through how seriously are you taking your godliness? If the answer is not very seriously, it's not simply going to affect only you and your own growth. It affects the church. It affects the witness of the church as other people see you knowing you belong to this body. They see you living the way that you do. It affects the ministry of the gospel, and it reflects on Jesus. See, all Christians are called to be godly. Godliness is not like a super secret second level discipleship Christianity. If you are not desiring to be godly, then you're either just a drift in your spiritual life or you may have to go back and examine yourself to determine whether or not you're really a Christian. Now, if you are a Christian and you know you want to be godly, you desire it, but you know you fall short, Remember that you're not accepted by God because you're godly. God is transforming you to become godlier because you're already accepted by him through Christ. So yes, strive for godliness. Think through places where in your life you need to be following God, but, but don't 
Trust in your efforts to become godly. Trust in Jesus for him to change you. And if you're not a Christian, and all this talk of godliness has got you thinking, what the heck are they talking about? Your own efforts to become godly, to, to live a life obedient and pleasing to God, can never make you acceptable with God. No amount of working to be godly can save you. A godly life is evidence that you're accepted by God, but not the means by which you become or stay accepted with Him. But here's the good news. If you rely on Jesus instead of yourself for forgiveness, for acceptance with God, for Him to transform you, and God accepts Jesus' perfect life of godliness as the life you should have lived, and He accepts Jesus' substitutionary death, the death that you should have died He accepts Jesus' death instead of yours. You deserve condemnation, and Jesus takes it. And what's more, he doesn't just give you a second chance. He doesn't just wipe the slate clean and say, okay, round two, try to be godly. He gives you a second life, a new life. The Holy Spirit comes to dwell in you, to will and to work to his good pleasure. If you have never made that commitment in your life to entrust yourself to Jesus so that he might forgive your sins and transform you, I challenge you to do that today. And if you're thinking, I don't know how to do that today, please come find me, come talk to me. I would love to talk to you about that. So let's pray as we close. Lord, we know we all are guilty of falling short. None of us are godly the way that we ought to be. But we thank you that in Christ we have forgiveness and we have the promise that you are transforming us from one degree of glory to another. And so give us grace to persevere and to work with all our might for our growth and godliness, but to trust not the least in our work put all of our trust in Jesus and his finished work. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. A wonderful Sunday.